weapon. 1 John 2, 18 through 27. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be a Black Pew Bible in front of you that can help you read along with us. You can find it on page 1211 of the Black Pew Bible. 1 John 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. You all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. First John chapter 2, we're going to look at that text that Morgan read. That's our teaching text this morning. As you're turning there, I ask the children, second grade and under, that like to go to children's church to line up here at the door. Going to go to children's church. You can line up here and get ready to go back and study the scriptures. If you would like to, if you're visiting with us, you'd like to take your child back and get them settled, feel free to do that. And you can come back and join us when they're, when they're good and ready. Great opportunity for children to, to be able to hear the, the gospel in an age-appropriate way. And it allows us to study um, a little easier as well. But First John chapter 2, verse 18 through 27. This is a, that was a great song that we ended our worship time with. It's a communion song getting us ready for the Lord's Supper, which we'll take here at the end of our service. So, uh, so thankful to be able to do that. It's great to focus our attention on Christ and what He's done for us. But uh, for these next few moments, we'll look at 1 John chapter 2. We're walking through this book verse by verse. And, and I've been walking through the Gospel of John as we prepare and teach and study 1 John. Um, I've been walking through the Gospel of John. It's been really, really helpful. And John 15, 8, it, it's interesting as you read one author, you'll see parallels in the books. So I was in John 15, verse 8. It says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And it goes right along with what we're talking about in 1 John. John, 
the beloved disciple, one of the closest friends of Jesus while he was on earth, writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a church in and around Ephesus that needs assurance. There's false teachers that have come out of the church. We'll see today they're called Antichrist. They've come out of the church and they're causing some difficulty in the church. They're false teachers. They're telling those inside the church that, no, you're wrong. That's not right. It's actually this way. But by leaving, they're proving themselves to be false teachers. And the, the ones left in the church, they need assurance. This isn't, again, this isn't uh, John coming in with both barrels, giving all these tests to see who's a Christian and who's not. Actually, this is written as a way of encouraging the church. So the tests we've seen so far, moral tests. Again, John 15, 8, we're to bear much fruit, so prove to be a disciple. So one of the things that John challenges the church, and we're challenged as well, is do we live like Christians? Do we obey God's word is our life characterized by obedience. And I challenged us to remember I gave you some homework, and some of you actually did it. You went to your coworkers, you went to your neighbors, and you, you, you said, hey, look, my pastor wanted me to do this. I want to ask you, do I look like a Christian to you? Do I live like a Christian? Do I work like a Christian? As your neighbor, do I look like a Christian neighbor? And some of you were encouraged, right, because your coworkers said, yeah, you, you actually do. You, you live your life obeying the Lord. Is your life steered by God's commands? And that's some of us have been encouraged by that. So yeah, by and large, my life is characterized by obedience. Not are we perfect, that's not what we're asking. But do we spend our lives trying to please the Lord? And then the other test was, do you love the brothers? Do you love the church? Do you love those in the church? Do you care for those who are part of the bride of Christ. We'll come to a third test today. When, when I grew up, I grew up in this church. I was spanked several times on the steps right outside those doors. Um, yeah, that's right. Never missed a Sunday. I never missed a Sunday night. I never missed a Wednesday night. My parents were faithful. We were here. I grew up in this church. And after church, we would go to my grandparents' house and all the kids. There were 19 grandkids and Pooh was the second favorite of all 19. And um, we would eat lunch and, and one of the things that we did, my grandfather would took the paper, the commercial pill and, and of course we're kids and so we would take turns looking at the what? The comics. Yeah, the only part we really cared about. And there's two, I have two favorite, favorite comic strips. One is Peanuts and the other is Family Circle which Laura Lee uh, is a big fan of as well. But Peanuts, Charles Schultz, he had a lot of uh, very insightful uh, strips there. One uh, says this, Lucy, I'll describe it to you, Lucy and Linus, of course Linus is Lucy's brother, they're looking out the window at a steady downpour of rain. Boy, said Lucy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? Linus says, it'll never do that. 
In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promises Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of that promise is the rainbow. You've taken a great load off, off my mind, said Lucy with a relieved smile. Linus responded, sound theology has a way of doing that. And that's so true, isn't it? We'll find out today that sound theology does have a way of taking a great load off our minds. Well, John, the last two weeks, as we've looked at our text in chapter 2, he's taken a, a reprieve from those tests, but now he's going to get back to the main purpose in writing, and that's to give his readers assurance of their salvation, to encourage them. And today we'll see a doctrinal test as we get back to the test-taking, a doctrinal test. What do you believe about Jesus? He's writing this to the church. What do you believe about Christ? Well, he's taking up the theme from verse 17 that the world and its desires are passing away. So in verse 18, he talks about the last hour. So our point, uh, the first point from our text, is that in the last days, Antichrist will oppose the church. Antichrist will oppose the church. And we need to define some terms here. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Well, the last hour, what does it mean to be the last hour? Well, this term, last hour, is only used here in the New Testament, but there's similar phrases like the last days. We see that, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, Paul writes, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. This last days we see again in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. So Paul has used this last days. Here Peter is using it, knowing that first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. There's another phrase real close uh, to last days, last hour, and that's last times. We see that again. Peter uses that term in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So last days, last times, last hour. This is all the time describing Aiden, the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Or more specifically, from the time he ascended back into heaven. You remember he ascended back into heaven. And he said, when I ascend into heaven, I'm going to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, which came on Pentecost. So from that point in history until he comes again is the last days, the last times, or the last hour. So guess what? John's readers, John and his readers, they were living in the last days. But we are too. We're living the last days. Being in the last days means... That the next great event that takes place in redemptive history is what? Is Jesus' second coming. Yeah, his, his imminent return. That's what we say about imminent return. Like, there's nothing else that has to happen for Jesus to come back. We're waiting on his imminent return. We're living in the last days. I don't see Blake. I wish Blake was here. Blake is a football coach. Um, Blake, go forth. And something interesting happens when you go to high school football games. Uh, come the fourth quarter, Morgan, what does everybody do? You know, yeah, we do this right here. Yeah, what does that mean? You're like, what, is those, what are those kids doing? You know, the football coaches yelling and screaming and getting his players all fired up. They're all going like this, right? What are they doing? Some of you ladies are like, well, yeah, what is all that about? That's kind of stupid looking, right? 
Um, what's going on there? They're saying it's the fourth quarter. You have four quarters, and they're saying it's the fourth quarter, and they're getting them all excited. Why is that so important? Why are they even doing that? That's it. That's it. Hey, this thing's coming to a close, right? When they're doing this, they're reminding their teammates that we have to play with more determination, more focus, more discipline because time running out. Soon the end will come, right? Any uh, Grizzly fans in the house there? There you go, Garen. Amy, I was going to call on Amy. Um, yeah, Grizzly. You ever go to Grizzlies games down at the FedEx Forum? You go to the games, and and uh, and, and I've been, been to several, and I enjoy it. But what's interesting when you go to the Grizzlies games at the beginning of the games, you're looking around, you're thinking because you know you got these seats, you know, and you're kind of up, kind of high, but you're looking around, you're going, hmm, what about all those seats down there? I wonder if I could just go down there and sit because there's like nobody here. But then what happens towards the end of the game? By the time the end of the game comes around, you look around, you're like. You don't notice it because you're focused on the court. You're focused on play. But the place fills up. Like, where, where were all these people? And you're thinking, well, are they get, just getting off work late or what? Maybe so. But really, the reason they get there at the end of the game, why? It's the fourth period, the fourth quarter. And this is the most important part of the game. That's when it gets the most intense. And it doesn't really matter. At halftime, if, it's, if you're up by 20 or down by 20, it really doesn't matter. It's kind of, the first part of the game is kind of irrelevant. But the last part is, oh, the, the end is near. It gets serious in the fourth quarter. When I was in seminary, I had a buddy of mine. He was a very interesting guy. His name was Mike, and he was a, he was a manager for the, the University of Tennessee football team for a number of years. He was there um, during some uh, great times in Tennessee history. And, and, and I was really intrigued by that. But he was a journalist, and he would record a lot of things. And it was, this was back in the day when you had VHS tapes. And he would record NASCAR races. Now, I'm not a big fan of NASCAR. Don't really care anything. Don't really know much about it now. But when I was in seminary, he would record every race. And so after we finished our small group time and worship, and we went to the nursing home a lot of times, and we would go back to his place and we would watch the last like 15, 20 laps of the race. I got hooked. I got hooked. Jeff Gordon was, was like dominating every race, but I got hooked on this thing. I mean, you know, the first part of the race is like, it, it's irrelevant unless you like crash and wreck and you can't get back into the race. Those first I don't know how many times they do this, but that's just, it doesn't really matter. I'm like, why don't they, instead of doing like a hundred times, why don't they do just like 10 and have like four of them? Wouldn't that be like more exciting? But what happened is I got hooked on NASCAR because I'm watching the end of every race. And it's exciting. Why? Because at the end, they're going around, you know, 200 miles an hour, 150 miles an hour around, the, and it's just intense. Because why? Right? The end is near. So we're living in the last days, living in the last hour, living in the last time because the end is near. Jesus is coming back. It's imminent. He could come at any moment. So we see these recipients of this letter need to live wisely because you're in the last days. And he says, 
there in verse 18, as you have heard. It's interesting. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. Well, when did they hear that? Well, believers had been taught that. They've been taught about these Antichrist. In the Old Testament, we see one who opposes the, the kingdom of God depicted in the prophetic visions of Daniel. If you read the, the book of Daniel, it's very apocalyptic. But you, chapter 7, verse 11, these Antichrist figures are there and they're depicted and they're prophesied. They will come. And we get to the New Testament. John, he's the only New Testament author that uses this phrase antichrist. Anna meaning, anti meaning false or pretender, right? Someone claiming to be that person or someone who opposed that person. So you have these people who oppose Christ. And Jesus taught about these folks. Now you see in the, in the Old Testament prophecies and even the book of Revelation, there's this Antichrist, capital A maybe, Antichrist, this one figure who's going to come at the, right before Jesus returns. And he is going to wreak havoc and deceive people, right? And desire to take Jesus' position as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. He's going to deceive. He's going to wreak havoc. But there's the spirit of Antichrist that's present even today, even in John's day. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And Jesus here is talking about the, the last days, the, the end times, if you will. Paul, he calls this Antichrist figure, this one dominant figure, the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But there's a spirit of Antichrist we see throughout the last days. Hence the, the, the plural form of that of that noun, Antichrist, right? So those that oppose God's kingdom, they're going to come. Verse 19 says these Antichrists are, they're frauds, right? They're false believers. They're not believers who fall away. You know, they used to be Christians. I've talked to many people that said that. You know, I used to be a Christian back when I was younger, but I no longer am. Notice here in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Notice it doesn't say that they were believers, but they didn't persevere. It doesn't say that these people once loved God, but now they don't. No. These false teachers, these antichrists, they left the fellowship because they were never part of the fellowship. They were never believers. How do we know that? Because they left. And what I mean by left, I don't mean like, oh, they walked out physically, they walk out the building, or oh, they just stopped coming to church. That's not what this is talking about. No, they leave saying they, they, didn't, they didn't embrace Christ. They wanted nothing more to do with Jesus. They didn't embrace the gospel. They opposed it. They, they left the fellowship. Actually, they were never believers to begin with. That's how we know. Can you be a Christian? And oh, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm not. And no, if you're a, a believer, you're going to continue persevering in your faith. Legan Duncan says this: True believers cannot fall away from the faith, but false believers not only can, but always do. See these. Antichrist, they knew the truth, they had heard the truth, and gave intellectual assent, but they turned from it, not embracing it, proving themselves to be unsaved, lost.
Paul, he speaks about divisions in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to turn and look at that text in a moment before we take the Lord's Supper. But in, in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, there were divisions in the church there. They're having a lot of problems. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Those who reject Christ, they're not capable of having fellowship with those who are in fellowship with Christ. People who reject the truth reject fellowship with those who embrace Christ. Look at verse 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So the Gnostics, they denied they denied that Christ was a man, that he was God and man. They made him a mere man endowed with divine powers. They denied that the man Jesus and the eternal Son were and are the same person, possessing the same natures, both human and divine, at the same time. And those who deny that Christ is God and man, are, they're liars. That's the ultimate lie. The denial of the person of Christ. So they can't be in right relationship with God the Father. For those who deny Christ deny the whole basis on which such a fellowship could even exist. You hear that, don't you, sometimes? People say they love God. But when you start talking about Jesus, hey, they get a little squirrely. What's the problem with that? Yeah, they don't, they don't love God. You can't love and have fellowship with God because how do we have fellowship with the Father? It's through His Son, the God-man. If you don't embrace Christ, you don't embrace the Father. We see this in present-day cults. The Christian scientists, they say Christ was a mere man upon whom Christ's Spirit came. Right? Jehovah Witnesses, they say that Christ was a son of God, but not the son of God, right? Myriad of others who claim that Christ was the best of all men, but when you begin to say that he is the God-man, they can't embrace that. So any belief system that denies the deity of Christ are liars and antichrist. John Calvin, he writes this, we, we now see that Christ is denied whenever the things that belong to him are taken from him. Speaking about his deity. Right? And as Christ is the end of the law and the gospel and has within himself all the treasures of wisdom and understanding, so also is he the mark at which all heretics aim and direct their arrows. Therefore, the apostle had, has good reason to make those who fight against Christ the leading liars, since the full truth is exhibited to us in Christ. What one believes about Jesus is really, really important because it is the domino that causes all the others to fall. Notice verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. If one denies the second person of the Trinity, they also deny the first. You can't have one without the other. You can't have one if you don't have the other.
It's like the parable of the sower, isn't it? I mean, the parable of the sower, there's four seeds that are sown and the different types of soil. There's some that actually seed that falls and take root and they grow up, right? One type seed is among the thorns, right? One type seed is among shallow and shallow soil. So when difficulties come, persecution comes, worries of this world, they fall away, proving themselves to be false. Some jump ship, but when they do so, they show that they never belonged in the first place. And that was happening in the churches in and around Ephesus. You know, there's a 17-year-old boy, high school student. In order to graduate, he had to write an essay on a religious subject. So he chose the subject of union of believers with Christ according to the Gospel of John. So he's like I was doing, reading through the Gospel of John to find out where, where God speaks about union with Christ. Sinners being reconciled and having this union with, with Christ. I want to read a, a, a portion of this essay. Our heart, reason, history, and the work of Christ convince us that without Him we are doomed by God and only Christ can save us. 17-year-old boy like, wow, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. This 17-year-old boy seemed to have wisdom beyond his years. He had been baptized at the age of six into the Lutheran church. And the name of this young man is Karl Marx. Just nine years after writing these words, our heart, reason, history, and the work of Christ convince us that without him we are doomed by God and only Christ can save us. Nine years after he penned those words, he abandoned any Christian commitment that he had and he would go on to become the most influential atheist in the history of mankind. His ideas would catalyze the communist movement, right? Lead to one of the greatest epics of human misery and death in history. And I've witnessed that firsthand. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And we see that happening. John saw it happening in the church in Ephesus, and we see it today. Some who say they love God, but yet they don't embrace Christ. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. There are those that deny that Jesus is the God-man, and He is the Christ who was prophesied in the Old Testament, who came to make propitiation for believers' sins. We shouldn't be surprised. They're Antichrist to come and oppose the church. Second thing we see, these little children, fathers and young men, you hear you familiar with that, those terms? We saw that a couple weeks ago. These little children, fathers and young men, these believers have knowledge of God and as a result, God himself. Look at verse 20 and 21. Love the word but, right, in the Bible. It talks about these Antichrists. They went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Look at verse 20. But you have been... There's three distinctions here we see in the life of these believers. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. 
Look at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. Now there's three distinctions. Literally, there's, there's a contrast. The Antichrist, and now He has the believers, the, the, the true believers, those who are part of the church. First one is they have an anointing. The second is they have knowledge. And the third is they have eternal life. So the first distinction is the, this anointing. And this terminology gets tossed around a lot, especially among charismatics, those associated with Pentecostalism. But they have an anointing. Well, if you think about it, Christ, he's Jesus Christ, Christ meaning Christos, the anointed one. He's the Messiah. And so we're, we have this anointing. We're not Christ per se, but we, are, we have this anointing, this chrisma. And when Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and He ascended, He promised to send the Holy Spirit. And Paul reminds the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on to here in verse 8, he's quoting Psalm 68. Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. What is this gift? but the Holy Spirit, God Himself. And what does the Holy Spirit do? John in his gospel, chapter 16, verse 13, teaches us that the gift of the Holy Spirit helps us know the truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, right, He was promising, when He comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, we believers... We believe in the perspicuity of the Bible. It's a kind of a strange word. But what we know to be true is that the Bible is legible. It's understandable. We can read the Bible and understand it. The Reformers, that was a big part of what they wanted to see happen. They wanted to see the Bible translated into people's own vernacular, own language. Martin Luther, he wanted... The Bible to be translated into German so the farmer in the field could read and understand the Bible because if you read the Bible, you can understand it. The false teachers, they claim to have knowledge, right? Here, one of the distinctions of a believer, they have knowledge. Now, the, the Gnostics, those, these false teachers, they were saying that they had knowledge, this superior knowledge this mystical knowledge that was revealed to them that made them set apart from everyone else. But true knowledge recognizes and confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that He's the Christ. So here's another built-in test. It's a little more subtle than the others, but it's a test nonetheless. If you go out from us, meaning not just, again, physical leaving, but if you forsake the gospel, you don't embrace Christ, you oppose the idea that Jesus was the Messiah and He is the one who made atonement for sin. You show yourself, if you abandon that, you show yourselves to be Antichrist. So the question for us is, do we have right doctrine? Is our theology biblical? Are we trusting in the truth? John is giving them a test. Are you with us? 
Here's some that's left, but you're here. Guess what? You're with us. We're hanging on to the truth. We have not only this anointing, we have knowledge of the true gospel. And we're embracing it. That sound theology, what we think about Christ is very important. Linus, Lucy, they were right. It steadies us. In verse 23, if you have the Son, you have both the Father and the Son. If you don't have the Son, you have neither. Look at verse 24 and 25. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If, you, if what you've heard from the beginning, the gospel, the truth, right, abides in you, then you, will, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. This is the third distinction. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So you have the Antichrist. They're opposed to God. They're at enmity with God. Think about that. If you're not embracing, if you're not, if you're not passing the test here, Andrew, this this um, doctrine test. If you're not embracing Christ for all he's for all he is, saying that he's the he's the, the God man, he is my only hope, and I'm embracing him because without him I have no hope. Without him I can't have a relationship with the Father. Without him I'm eternally condemned. That's what John's saying here. But these folks who embrace Christ, they have the Father, and they have eternal life. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, His begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Yeah. There's a distinction between the Antichrist, those who've gone out, and those who are a part of us. Yeah. So you have these distinctions, the Antichrist, and you have the church. Again, John here is not, he's not trying to hammer folks. I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to give it to him. He's like, no, you're a part of the church. You didn't go out. John, you're here with us, brother. You're embracing this gospel and you're part of us. Guess what? You have the anointing. You have this knowledge that's true knowledge. And you have eternal life. Yes, encourage me. Yeah. Affirmation, right? Assurance. Third thing from our text, verses 26 and 27. Let's look at this. Let's read this text. If I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. See, that's what's happening. These people go out. It's like, well, okay, they went out from us. They don't embrace Christ. They're on their merry way. That's the problem. They didn't just go on the merry way. Nathan, that's why all the teaching on all this. Okay, I've got it already. We've got to embrace Christ. There's people that don't. Enough of that. No, why is this such a big deal? Because these people are lingering around. They're not just doing their own thing. No, they're trying to lead people astray. No, they're trying to deceive you. Verse 27, but, though, but the anointing that you receive, right, the Holy Spirit, from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in Him. It's interesting, it says you need no one you have no need that anyone should teach you. Well, that'll, that'll get some folks in the deer stand during deer season. Well, I don't really need to go to church. i got the Holy Spirit. We just get out there in the deer stand. We can have us church. How many times have you heard that? 
I've heard that a bunch. You, you try to minister to rednecks, you hear that a lot. What's he saying here? They don't need a teacher. Well, think about it. What's John doing as, he write, as he's writing this letter? Adriana, what's he doing as he's writing this letter? He's teaching them. Well, if he didn't need a teacher, he wouldn't have need to write this letter. So it can't mean that, okay, we don't, we don't have to be taught by people who know the Bible. No, what he's saying is because the Holy Spirit is the divine teacher given to each and every one of us, there's no additional secret knowledge, right, into which these Gnostic false teachers, they don't need to initiate you in these things. No, you don't. No need for that. You're a Christian. You're in fellowship with God. You can read and understand the Bible and you can be taught by the Spirit, which will help you what? Keep the faith and, and persevere. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. It enables us to, to understand and interpret the Scriptures. And when the Spirit applies the word of the gospel to our souls, we receive it not as a word of man, but a word of God. So through the Word, the Holy Spirit reveals to us the riches that God has prepared for us. And of course, we leads us thinking about the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, and you'll get to talk about that in your small group. We don't have time to do that now. But The Spirit takes the truth of the Gospel, Lydia, and continues over and over, time and time again, makes Jesus precious to us. And the wonderful thing is today we can take the Lord's Supper and that's what we're going to be able to do here. The Holy Spirit taking the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done for us and makes Jesus once again precious to his church. By way of application, what do we do before we take the Lord's Supper? I just want to give you a couple things to think about. It is the last hour, so let's live like Jesus is about to return. The Spirit, that's number one. The second thing, the Spirit, the Spirit is always at work in conjunction with the Word. Talk about knowledge, talk about truth. Let's read the Scriptures. I'll tell you, man, it, church, we say the Bible is the most important book in the world. If I had to be on a deserted island, you know the question it's fixed to ask you, Nathan, if you're on a deserted island... If you could only take three things with you, what would it be? No family members, right? If you were going to take three things, most of us in here say, I take the Bible, the scriptures, got to have the word, right? But then we have it today and this week. Did you read the, did you read the Bible? Did we read the Bible this week? Oh, it's the most important thing ever. We spend 10 minutes a week reading it. It's not very important to us, is it? All right. I'll leave you alone. Enough of that. Thirdly, the Spirit abides in us, right? The Spirit, we have the anointing. But also, and small group leaders can delve into this more in detail, but we also must abide in the Spirit. One of my favorite scriptures, John, John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If anyone... Abide in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We have to abide in him. We have to draw near to him, right? We don't just kind of 
coast through life as a Christian. Hey, 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 we don't coast. You can't coast and abide. It's work. It's work. Lazy people make terrible Christians. Lazy people make terrible Christians because this is work. Man, it's work. You got to fight. Fight the flesh. You got to fight. I got to get after. I got to draw near the Lord. Got to fight off sin. Those ideas and thoughts that are not biblical, we got to fight those off. It takes a lot of work. If you're, if you're, if you're a lazy person, you're not going to be a very good Christian. It takes a lot of work. Lastly, this is a test. Right? John's giving a test to the church. Not to beat them down, to encourage them. Hey, church, if you're embracing the gospel, chapel, you're embracing the gospel. You're holding fast to the truth that Jesus is, he's, he's, he's everything. He's how we have a relationship with the Father. It's through Christ as we trust in what Christ has done on the cross for us. Oh, we're, that's be encouraged. Be encouraged. Continue to abide in Christ. Continue to hold on to truth. But for some, maybe you're not embracing Christ. You've never done that. You've never come to a point in your life and you're like, I want Jesus. My sins are many. God's wrath is going to be poured out upon me when I die. I'll be separated from the Lord for all eternity. Maybe some of you have never acknowledged your sin. You've never turned from your sin and you've never embraced Christ. I'll encourage you today to repent. Turn from your sin and, and embrace Christ. Christ and what he did on the cross. Tell you what, what does that look like exactly? You just tell the Lord, I'm sinful. I'm sinful. I've rebelled. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm wrong. I've been wrong and am wrong. And I deserve your wrath. But Lord, I, I need your forgiveness and I want you to forgive me. I, I trust that what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died on the cross. He received the wrath of the Father for me and he, he died and he rose for me that I could be made right with you. Tell the Lord. Just pray that prayer, something along those lines. Say, Lord, I want to I live for you. I've been living like this, doing it my way for far too long, and I want to live for you. If you don't know how to do that, you got questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be the last one to leave today. Love to talk to you about that, as many others in this room would. As we have the anointing, church, the Holy Spirit, and, and we have truth, and what does the Spirit continually do is shows us how precious Christ is. And so we're going to take the, the Lord's Supper, and if you're with us today and you're visiting, we'd, we'd encourage you to take the Supper with us. We'd, we'd encourage you to take the Lord's Supper, and uh, um, we have what's called open communion. That means not everybody can take it, but every believer can take it. And if you're here and you say, well, I'm not a believer. Just what you're talking about, that repentance stuff, I probably need to do that. That's fine. Just watch and listen and learn. If you have little ones here and they, they've yet to repent and trust Christ, then, then, then don't let them take the Lord's over. Just tell them, you, you ought to wait, baby. We'll talk about this afterwards. And this is going to be a great opportunity for you to share the gospel with your children. But if you're here and you, you're saying, I've, I've repented of my sin and I've trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. I've been baptized and been made a, a profession of faith and, and I've told my church and the world that I want to follow Jesus and we encourage you to take the Lord's Supper with us. And you've got the elements. Does anybody need these? Anybody need the elements? We got, we got some coming here. Grab some of those and pass those around. If you want, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 11.
the Holy Spirit, though, the anointing, it makes the, it, it just again and again, just over and over again, just helps us see how precious Jesus is. And why is he so precious to us as the church? Because he, what did he do? He not only lived for us, he, he left the, the throne room of heaven. He came and he lived this in this sinful world and he obeyed the scriptures. He obeyed the law. He obeyed the Old Testament law perfectly. That's why he's so precious because he, he, he did it. He did what we could never do. Rick, he obeyed the law perfectly. And guess what? We got to obey the law. We got to have that record. In order to have a relationship with the Father, you got to have a perfect record. And Jesus wants to give sinners that record. 